The final season of Power Book 2, Ghost, begins. And for Tariq St. Patrick, it's the moment of truth. In the wake of being betrayed, pushed out of the drug game, and almost killed, Tariq is out for revenge. Will he prove to be like his father and do whatever is to be done to protect his family and his future? Or is he his own man? Power Book 2, Ghost, the final season. Watch now only on Stars and the Stars app. All right, so there we were, cruising through the new open-air zoo, when I realized that the park was closing in like 15 minutes. Luckily, we were in my Nissan Rogue. With its powerful DC turbo engine, well, we had time to see all the animals. Whoa! <laughs> and outrun a few! Drive the Nissan Rogue. There are moments in life that are so special that you have to capture them and save them forever. They are one of those once-in-a-lifetime events, like your baby's first steps, the first time you bring your family pet home, or your daughter's first dance performance. With iPhone 15 Pro, more storage means you don't have to delete anything that can become a lasting memory one day. And it's important to be able to share these moments with family members who weren't there to see them in person. Store more, share more. Connect with iPhone 15 Pro on AT&T. Get iPhone 15 Pro on AT&T and get an iPad and Apple Watch for 99 cents per month each. AT&T. Connecting changes everything. Limited time offer. Requires 0% APR. 36-month agreement on each. Well-qualified customers. Other terms and restrictions apply. See att.com slash iPhone for details. Let's just keep it real straight shot with no chaser. I'm going to get a little bit rough. I'm here for those who really believe in the American process. All of us. Straight shot, no chaser. With your girl, Tesla Figaro, on the Black Effect Podcast Network. What's happening, straight shooters? This is Tesla Figaro, the host of Straight Shot, No Chaser. I wanted to start off season two with someone who is very special to me someone that has been in my life for almost 30 years. And he is not on this show today just because he's been a longtime friend of mine, but because I feel he has so much to offer. Let me correct that because I know he has so much to offer. I wanted to share a little bit of his story with you. I like to joke and call him my senior gangster advisor. Since 1994, representing Center Park in Inglewood, California, national best-selling Arthur Clifford Johnson. When I met him in 1994, he was introduced to me by Big E.T., rest in peace. And he was introduced to me as Spud the Blood. So I wanted to have him on the show to talk about a number of things that I think you'll find just as interesting as I have throughout our friendship. What's happening, Spud? Thank you for joining me. Hey, how you doing, Tess? Thanks for having me. I'm doing well. Well, as you know, we have very conversational interviews here at Straight Shot No Chaser. Uh, and I need you to be just like you normally are with me. I love that intro, though. And you say, I love that. Hello, Tesla. How are you? Talk to me like you normally talk to me. Because one <laughs> thing about the Straight Shooter family, we uh, I always pride myself on them being able to just be a part of the conversation, a fly on the wall in my everyday conversation. So, Thank you so much for joining me. There's so much I want to get into. And because I'm so familiar with your story, because I've known you for 27 years, it was really hard for me, honestly, to know where to start. Your life is truly, not only do you write novels, your life is a novel. 
And it's so many different chapters, so many different elements. I struggled with, you know, where do we start? If I really wanted to start from the very beginning, this this interview would be an all day long thing. I actually think that many parts of your life could be broken down into a series of interviews. So I want to say that right out the gate that I would love to have you come back and break down certain components of your life that I have found to be helpful to me individually, but more importantly, in politics. So I needed to figure out, you know, where do I start? And there were so many things I could talk about. I could talk about you starting to gangbang at eight years old. I could talk about the difference between now and then. I could talk about why blood started, you know, the blood gang started. You grew up in Inglewood, California. There's a lot of information that you have on what it, the intention of the blood gang from the beginning and what it's turned into now. I could talk about your involvement in the 92 riots with you and the other homie taco who I want to have back on the show where you two can talk about how you were a part of the blood and crypt treaty. I could talk about your case of being a first time nonviolent offender and actually having to serve time under the crime bill. I could talk about how you published your books in prison, how you started writing and how now they're available in Walmart, Barnes and Noble all over the country. I could talk about how one of your books is dedicated to me. You got to know I was going to bring that up. I could talk about your understanding of politics and how you were against politics because of the resentment and of serving time being over sentence. One thing about it, you've always taken accountability and responsibility for your crime, but it was the over sentencing and the hope that the Obama administration gave you and how your position on that then, how this changed now. I could talk about how you mentor kids now. I could talk about how you have been someone that has given me so much game on the inner workings, not just from what I observed from you and growing up in that era and my my family and you and so many other homies that I've been around my entire life, but how we've had so many conversations on me showing you how it truly is like gangbanging and you having that depth of knowledge. I could talk about you know, what's next in your life, the movies coming up, the books coming up, so many different thoughts. And so I I wanted to put that out there because I wanted the straight shooter family to know that there's many other things that I want to bring you back on to talk about. And that was really a framework, you know, kind of laying out all of the things that I think, you know, are different levels to your writing. Because, you know, we have to be time sensitive. I can't get into all of those things, But I wanted to mention it so you can weave it through in our conversation, you know, as we progress. So we're going to kind of fast forward past your younger years. And of course, you can, you know, weave that in the conversation. But I want to start right at the time when you've never transitioned necessarily at this particular time from being a blood. But when you got into the dope game and and this is so important, you know, for people to hear, because I, I really you are truly the model of. When I'm out there talking about mass incarceration, when I'm talking about the 94 crime bill, people don't realize that it it really comes from personal experiences from people like you that I've had an opportunity to know, to see the beginning, to see you do your time, to ride with you during your time and afterwards. So this interview is so critical to me because there's so much information that has guided me, motivated me, and inspired me to do what I do. So let's kind of start as for you telling the folks, you know, a little bit about yourself, you know, growing up in Inglewood, becoming a blood the year you got put on, and then how you started getting into the dope game, 
and going, you know, what they say, OT out of town and how you caught your case. Let's kind of start there and then we'll weave in, you know, a lot of the elements that I've mentioned to make sure that the, the family gets a good a good shot of your story. Well, I basically grew up in my neighborhood and in my time by being a second generation blood, it wasn't about being put on. We grew up in the neighborhood. All of us was close knit friends, knew each other's mothers and, and so forth. So that putting on that came later on in the game. And uh, just growing up in Inglewood, you know what I mean? Just my neighborhood, Cedar Park Bloods. And it was just early, it was just really commodity, defending the turf, making sure no one else came around and got in our, you know, got in our lane. Then we had a, uh, you know, I was since I started young, you know, really too young to be talking about, but I wasn't gangbanging at eight. I was <laughs> on the neighborhood. I was with the big homies, but I wasn't gangbanging. That really didn't transpire until I was about 12 or 13. That's when I became. But you called active. yourself a blood, right? Oh, no doubt. Well, no technically, doubt. I mean, you wasn't active, but you yeah, were, you were gangbanging at eight. Yeah, but I was, I, I, I you want to take that, I can. You know, like, <laughs> <laughs> You know, I was one of the bad kids in the neighborhood, yeah. you know. So as time progressed, like I said, by the trying, I was 12, 13, it got kind of serious. And once it got serious, a couple of OG homies got at us, more or less was like, either you're going to be with this now or step away from it. Because now it's a whole nother level. And me and my peers that was my age or a little older, it was, you know, we with y'all. So whatever we're going to do, we're going to do. And it transpired and just still basically defending the neighborhood just a tad bit more aggressively. And this is like 82, 83. What, what is defending, the, not to interrupt you, but I, I want to be clear. What What is defending the neighborhood in that time? Because this is 19 what? 82 and 83. Okay. So so for those, because everybody doesn't understand this culture, and I really want people to understand. What is defend the neighborhood in 82 and 83? What, what did that mean? for somebody that was 12 or 13 years old. We and my crew, we were basically defending, doing our part to defend the neighborhood by patrolling the neighborhood nightly, daily. As soon as we get out of school, we, we walk all through the perimeters of our neighborhood and make sure ain't nobody easing in the turf or trying to set up the turf or try to do anything like that. Keeping the, keeping the neighborhood secure by basically, we call it park patrolling. But what, but... But what would they do, though? Uh, I mean, like, really explain. I, I know the answers, but I want them to know because everybody doesn't. Know. One of the things is they don't understand gang culture. And so I really when you say keeping it secure, secure from what? Like, give an example. If you weren't doing what you were doing, what does that mean? Basically, say we roll around the neighborhood and we see some enemies in the turf spray paint. They, they set on our you know, in our neighborhood. Mm -hmm. We are Russian. You know, we had sticks, bats, and we'd beat them up. So that you know was I mean? before that was before guns got involved. Yeah. And it, it was basically. It really wasn't no gunplay. Wasn't no gunplay. It was more fighting. So it more was about if they spray painting, if they're selling drugs. Like catching somebody. Like the main thing we used to catch dudes is my neighborhood had a lot of girls. Okay. So we they'd be coming over trying to talk to some of our homegirls that's not affiliated, but just lived in the neighborhood. Mm -hmm. And they always be coming on Crips or whatever, trying to come over there and we'd catch them. Uh-uh. And then we'd get on them. 
you know, stuff like that, patrolling neighborhood, make sure ain't nobody spray painting, ain't nobody lurking, trying to come through because the same thing that the dudes on the other side coming doing, we was doing the same thing on their side. We was trying to get at their girls. We was going in their neighborhood, spray painting the neighborhood in the wall. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? So it's just more of a balance. And that's what we call securing the neighborhood. Okay. Defending the neighborhood, park patrol in the neighborhood, make sure no enemies came through. Okay. And that was the early stages. 1984, 80, 84, 85, it got deadly. That's the best word I can use because now it was gunplay. And now it got dangerous and it got real. And by this time, though, by being around the neighborhood for so long, you become seasoned. And once you become seasoned with it, then it's, it was like second nature. And then as it turned around, the money started, the crack era. And now all of a sudden we we transpiring, we still gang banging, but we gang banging on a level that we never even thought we were to because now the money's involved. And at 14 and 15 years old, making seven, $8,000 a day selling rocks changed the game. And in the, and it was just now we got low riders, we got cars, we got money, and we game banging, we got guns. That was the most specific thing. Now we got guns that we only heard about on Rambo movies and TV movies. So it got real, real fast. Let's pause a little bit, just going back a second, because I want to make sure that we pay homage to E.T. When you, I noticed where you were going, when you got into the crack game, explain, you know, a lot of people see this on movies, you know, so they don't have a chance to, interact with folks that really, you know, you see it on the movie, you see it on the, on the series Snowfall and you know how you got that first rock and flipped that first amount of money and saw the difference and how your eyes got big. And and I just want to tell, you know, from the, the gangbanger girlfriend side of things and the, the hustler girlfriend side of things, I remember being very young, 10, 11, 12, watching my cousins in the game and watching them go from one level to the other with hair on. And then it went to crack. And I remember when I said I was going to get me a hustler boyfriend the same way, you know, little kids, guys, you know, boys would say, "Okay, when I grow up, I'm going to be a baller. I want those shoes. I want those clothes. I remember very clear when I said, "Okay, yeah, I'm going to get me a boyfriend like that, because back then they had on ropes and chains. Shout out to my cousin, Glenn. I'll never forget him coming to the house with a Kango fur on. And, you know, I'm eight, nine years old coming to the house, Kango fur on, big chains. That was the first time I ever saw a briefcase full of money with bills, you know, wrapped up, you know, uh, money wraps. I'd never seen that in life. And the the babies, they had their, you know, nugget rings. That was, you remember nuggets was back in, back in the day. And their babies had nugget rings and nugget braces. And I remember saying, yeah, I'm going to give me a guy like that. So the next guy that you're about to talk about, is Big E.T. I, I want to pay homage to him, rest in peace to him, and which is how we met. But talk a little bit about what attracted you to selling crack because I, I want people to, to really hear that from someone, not just on TV, but what was it about? How did that change your life and why did you make that decision? Because that is the, the, the foundation to the 94 crime bill. So I'm trying to wrap all this into a bowl so people can know why people sold crack. And then I also want people to know why a lot of women got time because of their boyfriends and their affiliation with dope dealers. So if you wouldn't mind, pause a little bit and kind of go tell us about what attracted you to because you you were muscle. 
you know, you was gangbanging all day. Wake up in the morning, gangbang on Crips. The the drug thing, and again, I can say this because I know your story. The drug thing was not what you, you truly like gangbanging. And it was E.T. that kind of showed you the money side of things. So talk a little bit about that and how, why that attracted you and how his lifestyle influenced you and what made you say, okay, I'm, I'm going to go ahead and get this money and then let that lead into how you decided to, you know, at one point go out of town to sell dope, which is how we met, but kind of backtrack a little bit on what attracted you to the dope game side of things to go from gangbanging, even though you still was a gangbanger when you were selling dope, but what made you want the money side? It was a guy in our neighborhood, we always known him as being a superstar sports player. We used to go watch more, watch him play baseball in Morningside and watch him play football. And all, we always, he was always called A.T., Ernest Hill. That was his initials. So he, after he graduated, he had some heavy connections. And then, like everybody called now, trap houses. <laughs> he had the first crack house in our neighborhood. Back then, we called them rocks. Rock house. <laughs> right. You know, yeah. <laughs> And he said he pulled me and my best friend Uchi. He was like, "Look, man, y'all, y'all need what well, y'all wild, and that's cool. But y'all need to get some money in your pocket. Come on over to the house." And I never forget it. We came in his room. We went, we went in the dining room. He pulled out. At that time, I didn't know what it was, but he pulled out like a half a kid kilo of cocaine, crack rocks, and he broke them down in the twenty fives and fifties and hundreds. He said, anybody come on the 25, you give him this bag. Get him on the 50, this bag, and so forth. And he said, y'all stay in here until it's gone. And i never forget, it was like 4, something like almost 4.30 in the afternoon. By midnight, we were done. And he would come periodically and check on us. Now, we like, he said, okay, give me all what y'all made. And then he count off and he gave us both $7,000 a piece. Now, at 14 years old with $7,000, the attraction was there. It was at that point, I'm like, it's nothing else in the world I want to do with this. And we, we got heavier that we went from being consistent in the crack houses and elevating to the point where he said, okay, y'all can spend your own money and make your own instead of having to pay me. But me and Uchi was like, no, we rather you just give it to us and we just do it for you. And that's how it went. And then it went to, like you say, the nugget rings the big chains, the khakis and the t-shirts, starched up, you know, taking our stuff to the cleaners. Because growing up, we weren't taking up to the cleaners. We, my mama washed my stuff and told me to iron it. So yeah, now I'm coming like, back. Ain't nothing like that 90s starch. <laughs> <laughs> because I'm coming home with my cleaner stuff and my mama looking at me. And I'm like, you know, she ain't saying nothing yet. Till one morning she came in that house and I was asleep and she said, what are you doing? And I never forget, I was 15, right after my father passed. She said, what are you doing? And I said, uh, selling rocks. Rocks, what is rocks? And I'm like, cocaine. And she said, and, I, and when I did it, I turned my head and I had a big knot of money sitting right on top of my little dresser thing. And she followed me. And she grabbed the money and looked at it. And she said, how much is that? I said, I don't know, probably about eight to 9000 And she said, nothing in the world I can say going to stop you. You just promise me you be careful when you go to school and you get that education. Mm -hmm. I said, I promise. But right then, it was, it was, it was all over I got with. So there was no 
pep talk that could have changed it. There was nothing that could have your father um, who passed, who was murdered. Correct. Yes. And I, you know, he was always, and again, these are a series. I want to bring you back to talk about so many different elements because that's a part that I think is important to talk about, you know, actually how your dad, you know, without getting too much in it was, you know, defending a family member of yours and ended up being murdered behind someone else. And so I want to talk about that at another time because those layers are important uh, you know, we hear a lot about not having men in the home and family men in the home. And I think it's important that we kind of squash some of those stereotypes and also talk about what happens with why black men are not. In the home. It's not always because it's a dad be dad situation. It also could be because of issues of poverty that also cause people to be murdered and that and that links directly to your start your, your father's story so i just want to put that pin in there for the listeners because again i want to do a series of interviews with you and that's something i want them to come back to you know when i interview you again that they hear about that story so basically fast forward et put you in the game you got the money you now you're saying okay all the other homies they were going out of town they were getting money. At first, you kind of wasn't with it. You were just cool with just being in Inglewood. But you started being attracted to the possibility of being able to flip money. And the listeners are probably saying, oh, he didn't say that. Well, get again, listeners, I know his life story literally like a book. So you're going to hear me tell his story as well and, and kind of get feedback on various parts that I'm familiar with. So then here comes the out of town thing. You know, yeah. you're seeing people go out of town and, and, and get money out of town. Tell us about that. What motivated you, you know, to do that and take that risk? Because that is where the federal charges, just so the listeners understand, I'm I'm building up a framework so that people understand where the federal charge comes in opposed to the state and the crime bill is directly related to federal charges. So now you're at the point we're going to bump up to getting money in the hood Everything looking good. You got the money. You got the girls. You got the change. You got the nuggets. You're paying the bills. Everything is all good. Now the out-of-town opportunity presents itself. Pick it up from there. E.T. had went to a little, a little prison stand. So now we didn't know. He's like, okay. Then I'm watching all my other homies from Christian Mafia, and my neighborhood start going out of town. So now I'm like, I'm doing good. In the neighborhood, flipping, still doing my gangbang lightweight, but more focused on the money. And I'm seeing all the homies going out of town, coming back. They leaving broke and coming back in brand new vets and 454 trucks and low riders. I'm like, oh, oh, oh. I mean, I'm always scared. I said, man, I ain't going to jail out of town. My mama ain't going to be able to come see me. I'm not going to go. I'm going to stay right here in the set. But the more and more I kept watching my homies coming back, doing it bigger and bigger, I said, okay, I got to go out of town. My homie Reg, rest in peace, got at me. He was like, man, you want to go out of town with me and my brother? And I'm like, where? He's like, Oklahoma City. I'm like, man, I ain't really trip. See, you done got all that time in Ohio. I ain't really with this out of town. But something just told me, go with it. So we went to Oklahoma City, and we went near six days, and we, we made close to, close to $97,000. So now we came back to the neighborhood, I went bust brand new, a brand new 91 truck and put up money and was like, okay, this is it. You know what I mean? This is what it's going to be about. 
Then we came back on another mission because Ridge had passed. That's my homie, Louis T. brother. And once he passed, Louis T. was like, my mama don't want me to go back to Oklahoma. So you can either go or we just leave it alone. And I'm like, man, I'm going back. And we met some other dudes. They ended up being a real good friend of mine. Shout out to Frank Nitty. Frank Turner, my dude. What's happening, Frank? My my big homie, my uncle, my brother, my friend. Shout out to Frank. Go ahead. He'd be right. mad. If we, didn't, and, if we didn't pause and say that, it would have been a problem. So let, Oh, I'm, you would have been calling me in the middle of the night. Why you didn't say my name? <laughs> so let's let's be clear. Shout out to Frank Turner. Frank Turner. Frank just, Nitty. That's right. And just so folks really understand my relationship with Frank, he is my cousin's father. Rest in peace to my cousin, Jordan Turner. Uh, I'll have him on, Frank, I'm sure at one point to talk about what it's like to have to lose a son. But I want to give that shout out to him and my cousin, Stephen Lynn, who is also these these are kinfolk that I'm talking about now. So we needed to pause and pay homage to Frank. Okay, go ahead. So now the money's enormous. You know what I mean? It's and what's enormous? Break down because a lot of times people see money on TV and they don't understand that '90s money. I understand it. So let's break down because I have a, a very wide group of folks that listen to me, young, old, in the middle, and a lot of people don't come from this culture. So let's let's break down what is enormous because I, I want them to know what I what I saw for real with my own eyes. What were you running on a weekly basis? All right, at that time. When we was going back and forth, a kilo of cocaine out here was going for about 13,000. 13, you take that one kilo and take it to Oklahoma and whip it and flip it, and I'm coming back with over 100, about 120,000. And that's strictly selling weight. That ain't nothing. Weight is ounces, half ounces, to quarter keys, and on forth, so forth. The norms, the prices were so different from California to Oklahoma, that it was just ridiculous. Where California was $400 an ounce, Oklahoma was $1,500 an ounce. Mm -hmm. So that's how we was able to make that money so fast. In a week, I mean, in a week, we probably make about $30,000 just starting out. And then that was even... Yeah, that was even before learning how to stretch it and learning how to break it down. There's so much game we can give on that, yeah, which we'll, get, he, we'll dig into later, you know, about the dope game. Because yeah, I, I know there's he, a lot you can break down on how Basically, yeah, flipped. you buy one key. Naturally, if you don't do no whipping, you can take one key, which is 36 ounces, and turn it into 52 ounces just by putting soda with it. Uh-huh. And once that started, so you want 52 ounces at $1,500 a zone. Right. So on a weekly basis, you were making what? Just to clarify. In the early stages, in the early stages, when I was just coming out, dealing with the weight, anywhere from twenty five to 30000 a week. The final season of Power Book 2 Ghost is here, and no one's future is safe. After surviving a hit on her life, Monet, played brilliantly by Mary J. Blige, has to reckon with what led her to almost lose everything and to atone for the life she has forced her children to live. And on the other side of the coin, Davis, portrayed by the multi-talented Method Man, is suspended and on the verge of losing his law license. Desperate to survive, he fully embraces the criminal underbelly of his enterprise and finds himself working for both sides, loyal to whichever one benefits him most. And then, of course, there's Tariq, who finds himself at rock bottom and facing threats from every angle. With his future in the game in serious doubt and his family's safety on the line, will he lean into the St. Patrick name and do whatever has to be done to get back on top? Like father, like son. Power Book 2, Ghost, the final season. Watch now, only on Stars and the Stars app. In the pressure cooker of the NBA playoffs, there's no room to fake it. When the NBA championship is on the line, every pass 
Every shot and every dribble is immediately, undeniably consequential. The playoffs are the time for the real. Real stakes, real emotions, real sweat, real blood, and real tears. Trust me, I know what it takes to bring home a championship ring. The regular season is tough, but these games are a completely different level. Now is the time when legacies are made. The best team will bring home the Larry O'Brien Trophy and add their name to basketball history. Will we see a battle between marquee franchises or will we see a new champion crowned? Which teams will rise from the chaos? Which teams will conquer? Which team is going to make this year their year? These are the moments of unscripted, pure entertainment that only happen on the hardwood. You've waited all season for this. It's time to take it to the next level. The NBA Finals continue. Tune in on ABC. There are moments in life that are so special that you have to capture them and save them forever. They are one of those once-in-a-lifetime events, like your baby's first steps, the first time you bring your family pet home, or your daughter's first dance performance. With iPhone 15 Pro, more storage means you don't have to delete anything that can become a lasting memory one day. And it's important to be able to share these moments with family members who weren't there to see them in person. Store more, share more. Connect with iPhone 15 Pro on AT&T. Get iPhone 15 Pro on AT&T and get an iPad and Apple Watch for 99 cents per month each. AT&T, connecting changes everything. Limited time offer requires 0% APR, 36-month agreement on each. Well-qualified customers, other terms and restrictions apply. See att.com slash iPhone for details. Now we're talking about money for real. And this is truly a real story. I, I've watched, because now you're in Oklahoma City. So I, right. I've watched this money be bagged up personally. I've seen you and E.T. and other people in the whole clique gamble this type of money on one roll. I mean, easy, because that was when the gambling was hop, was popping. and 10000 a shot. Easy. 15000 a shot. Easy. So... Now we're at the time where I come in, which is the most important time. Um, <laughs> and I, I want to give a clear, I, I want to say, you know, what, what people don't understand, people say, you know, where are you from? And I tell people, you know, my family, my bloodline is Louisiana. And I say that because Figaro, I, I, I do believe that women from Louisiana, like my Aunt Ella, is, you know, very different. Creole women are very different. So I, I give people, I want people to know the sauciness comes from Louisiana, but I did grow up in Oklahoma. Uh, I left at 18 and I've lived in Chicago, Houston, Dallas, Orlando, you know, various places. But the reason why I talk about West Coast so much and people, a lot of people think I'm from LA or they think, of, but the reason why I talk about it so much is because when I met you guys, I met you guys when I was in high school. You know, my neighborhood was Piru, 456 Piru, North Highlands. My cousins were neighborhood Crips on the east side. And in that era of the 90s, everything was flooded. I mean, gangbanging controlled everything. In fact, there's a stat uh, from Bloomberg City Lab, and this stat is actually was actually in 2012. And it said the five cities with the most gang violence is Long Beach, Los Angeles, Newark, Oakland, and Oklahoma City. And a lot of people don't see that. I know Oklahoma City, I think they did. Didn't they have a, they had a, uh, one of those gangland, you know, they featured Oklahoma City. And I think people get the Midwest twisted because I don't count Oklahoma City as necessarily the South. It's the Midwest, Kansas and that area. 
And what people don't understand, I wanted to put this, you know, this this little bit of nugget in on why Oklahoma was a choice, especially for selling dope, because Oklahoma was in the center. And so you could push weight to Texas, Kansas, whatever. It was a small town. And when L.A. came into the mix, they've been gangbanging since the 80s. But when L.A. came into the mix, not you particularly, but when gangbanging reached out, you know, outside of L.A., it hit the Midwest hard. And a lot of people in the South, Texas, Louisiana, other places, Georgia, which I know they have gangs, but I don't know how, you know, relevant it was then. But in Oklahoma City, everything was influenced by the West Coast. So that's why my Straight Shot No Chaser song has a West Coast vibe. That's why people hear me talk about, you know, Tupac all the time. And we, we, we are not just had an argument about Tupac. We're going to say that for another time about whether he was West Coast or not. The point is, um, <laughs> we're not even going to have that argument. Anyway, so growing up around Bloods in my neighborhood and my cousins being Crips, when you and Biggie T got into the mix, that was really the first time that I met somebody from the big turf. So <laughs> you have to like re- really think about that. It's so powerful when I think about that to be 15, 16 years old and think about how influential that is to be that young and to be so influenced. Minister Society, it just came out. Boys in the Hood came out earlier. You know, I watched it after it came out. I think Boys in the Hood came out in 89, 90. I was too young then. But Minister Society came out in 93. And so I remember very clear, me and my best friend Tammy and Trey, rest in peace, young fool, who was a blood in Oklahoma, who couldn't stand me because I had cousin Crips. Um, but I remember so clearly the influence of what it meant for like somebody from Big Turf. You know, I knew the homies who represented Pyru and Pyru Love was bumping back then. And, you know, you had Midwest City, Murder One, you had all these different. And really Crip was the thing back then because we know the Crips, you know, kind of ran the rap industry back then because you had Snoop and, you know, all of that that came out with NWA. But when you got into the mix, and I just want to tell this story. I know we don't have all night, but there's so many different elements to our story. I, I just want people to know. And I and this is also time for people to get to know a little bit about me. When you came into the mix and you pulled up to pick me up, and I'm telling you, Spud, it was like menace of society, literally. It was like I was meeting old dog or something, you know, from the for the first time in life. Cause you picked me up, and when you opened up the door and was up, baby, you had that hard California accent and being around ET. It just has such an influence on my life. I remember being in the club and being out. And I'd be like, Spud, hey, this dude mess with me or whatever, whatever. And you was always about the business. What's happening? Who's what, what, what? I mean, you was really on your ego shit back then. So it's so, it, I just, I want people to know that about me because I want people to understand because a lot of times when they see gang members, or they, they can't see, they can't humanize them. And I want people to know that even though they see me on Fox News and the Black News Channel and MSNBC and doing my thing in politics, I want people to know that this lifestyle that I talk about is personal. I, I lived it. I was around it. I didn't gangbang, but I'm what you call a sympathizer. You can even call me, like in politics, I'm a moderate sympathizer because I had blood and crips, but I dated bloods. And it was so, I, I learned so many lessons, which will have you come back to talk about that because I want people to know the lessons that I learned from being in that environment. But when you got in the mix, it just changed like my whole outlook, you know, on what it meant, what a G meant, what it looked like, 
how G's pushed the line differently, you know, how the respect came in. So let's talk about, let's get into now you're in Oklahoma City. E.T. brought you to Oklahoma City. You're making the money. Stuff is looking good. Everything is rolling. Let's fast forward up to, I remember calling you after some people got time and you reminded me of this story. And I'm going to bring you back to talk about how you and I met in a very, you know, not how we met, but how you influenced me. I'll give people a little bit of that. But I want you to talk about, before I tell the story on when I last saw you and then when I reconnected with you in prison, but talk a little bit about, you know, you got out of town, you started making the money, the money was flowing. How did the feds start building their case against you? One thing about the FBI, when they come, you know, you, you know, you, you know, your run, your run is over. <laughs> so you might as well get ready to accept this sign they finna give you. Mm-hmm. And by then, 95, 95, 96, 97, the numbers got. Remember, I used the word enormous. Now they just got stupid. Like what? I mean, An example like what? Within the three month time, I'm making 250000 profit. And, and I'm flying back from L.A., sending people back out here, going back, just going and going. Then all of a sudden, 97, it was a bad drop where nobody could get anything. But E.T. had somebody that could still get it. So basically, for the summer of 97, it was just, uh. But I realized that drop wasn't really no drop. The feds had got on a lot of people mm-hmm. in Oklahoma City. Yep. Now I'm hearing this. You know, dudes on the east side, killer, weasel. These are all federal cases. We were all together one time, so it's not like I'm telling nothing new. Then all of a sudden, they start getting hit. So now E.T., who was on the run from the FBI already, he was supposed to be staying low, but you know, wasn't nothing low about E.T. So next thing you know, he ended up going in. He calls me and says, hey, man, they asking about you. I'm like, do do they know anything? He's like, they're asking about you. That's enough. Yeah, that knucklehead, I said to slam it down. So now I'm going to slam it down. because I'm like, Wait a minute, hold on, because back up, you're going to give me my credit because I called you too and said I was, that you're... I was going to get okay, to well, it. Okay, well, make I sure we get... <laughs> See, I had three warnings. I had three okay. warnings. And yours was the third. Okay, hold on. So let's back up. So E.T. was the first warning, right? E.T. was the first. Okay. Then another part of mine said, hey, man, you need to slam it down. His name's Country. He said, man, I'm Shout I'm out here to the big homie, Country. Country, Kevin... You know, he said, I'm hearing things about your name, man, about people that's already in there. So now I'm spooking. But when you hit me out of nowhere, hey, how you doing? Dude, I was messing with him. Tell me he knocked up, man. They asking about you. I'm like, okay, all right, good looking. I appreciate that. I ain't worried about it. it. Ain't nothing. You know what I mean? <laughs> Scared the mess out of me, man. You know what I mean? I'm like, oh, no, it's them for real. So I'm like, if I ain't doing nothing, they can't get me. Not knowing that they already had the case against me. Mm-hmm. The case was already started in February 1998, where they said I served, I sold in the month of February 1998, I sold 16.5 kilos of crack in that month. And I didn't know anything about it until the FBI came. But when they came, they missed me. Just so happened, I picked up my son, they was following me. They knew I would pick up my son and take him back home. But this instant, I picked up my son and I took him to his mother's grandmother's house. And then when I was heading back, somebody in my neighborhood flagged me down and said, hey, man, the police are in front of your house. I'm like, all right, thanks. I busted you into the bank where I had some safe, safe deposit box. 
I had bags in there. I took what I needed up out of there. And I jumped on the road. I went to Tulsa and called Frank, say, come get me. Mm-hmm. He said, what's wrong? I said, man, the feds said, okay, it's over with. And he said, what you mean, come get you? I ain't coming to get you. <laughs> <laughs> I said, no, man, I'm, I'm in Tulsa, man. I got to get out of here. He came to Tulsa and got me. And then I had my other partner, Killer Dave. Shout out to Killer Dave, the homie, who I used to get just as a yeah. point. I got to make sure we get a homie's respect, because if not, they're going to be they gonna be fucking with me. Exactly. After so shout out to exactly. Killer Dave. Let's pause. Shout out to Killer Dave. Just so that the fat straight shooters know. That's it. I used to just as a point. I used to work at Brahms. I always tell this story. And I would run over to the homie Killer Dave's house across the street. My mama made me quit that job because I stayed at the homie's house. <laughs> and it was always at Killer Dave. I just like being around the homies. It is what it is. So these are the stories that I just tell people. Because, you know, Spud, it's really important to me that people don't know I'm just talking about gang culture just to, you know, say some damn gimme. These are really my friends. So my mom made me quit the job, but shout out to Killer Day. We got to give that pause. Who's now uh, in Atlanta and doing great things, wonderful things, promoting. Also with Frank, we keep saying Frank. I want people to know that Frank has absolutely changed his life around now. He has a football team. He manages kids in in, in Kansas, working a regular nine to five. I am so proud of Frank and we'll have an opportunity to talk about him more. But I wanted to give that quick plug, too, because a lot of people want to know, well, how do these people end up? So So go ahead. So anyway, you so killer day. I'm with Killer, and you know how Killer was. Killer, he was gonna always about a dollar, but he gonna be quick to bust his gun. And I'm like, Killer, <laughs> now don't give him no time. Now don't tell too much on. Right. We don't want nobody digging no, up no old cases. Done, <laughs> you don't mess with that man. So now I'm supposed to be low key on the run from the FBI, but I'm going to the clubs and I'm hanging out in the clubs and we coming out of the clubs and parking lot and I'm in shootouts and I'm like. <laughs> A person in FBI, this one to run from FBI, don't supposed to be doing this. Killer scared me so much. I said, you know what? I'm going to turn myself in and going to get this time out the way. Because mm-hmm. I watched how it stressed E.T. out. Yeah. He, he, one day he was Because as a point cool. of clarity, I met E.T. When, when he was running from the feds. On the run from the feds. Yeah. 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 So. And that, I mean, yeah, let's just lawyer. pause right there just so my listeners can know. That, that was a lot. I was a cheerleader in school around but bad boys who was running from the feds. <laughs> I was cheering in the daytime and at nighttime I was with the homies from California that was running from the feds. But we'll talk about that another time. Okay, so go ahead. So you watched how <laughs> you watched how it, it, it stressed um, ET out. So you said, okay, fuck it. I watched how I stressed my homie on this, and this we've been together too long. We done done too much together, and I and watched how I did it. I was like, I can't live like that. I get him my lawyer. I said, well, what's my charge? He said, man, they got you on distribution. I'm like, distribution? Don't they have to catch me selling something, distribution? He said, that's just a farce. When he come back, she's going to hit you with a conspiracy. So I'm like, a conspiracy? I said, I'm ready to turn myself in and let's deal with it. He said, okay, come on. I surrendered July 27, 1999. And wait a minute. Who took you in? Who took you? When you Bro, surrender. I didn't think you want me to walk you through it all. But well, that part we got to, because no. I don't want to hear Frank's mouth. Frank is the one. Frank, it, it, took, fr- me to my, Frank yeah. took me to my lawyer's house. To, I mean, to his lawyer's <laughs> office. I, did, I didn't want you to walk through that part, but I want to make sure, because Frank reminds me, he the one you called when you turned I yourself called in. Him, come okay. get me. Frank took me to the attorney's office, gave me a hug. He said, man, you sure you want to do this? I said, yeah, man, I'm going to get so. He said, man, you're going to get a gang of time. <laughs> I said, it's whatever. So I turned myself in. 
The lady name is Leslie May. She's retired now. She was the AUSA assistant United States attorney. Mm-hmm. She walked in. You know me, I'm on my gangster, straight up. I got the gangster mug on, no fear, ain't showing you nothing. Mm-hmm. But inside, I'm trembling like <laughs> <laughs> She came in the office and said, what's up, Spud? Spuddy B. And I'm looking at her, I'm like, who is you? She said, I'm the one that's going to change your life, either for the good or for the worse. What? I said, man, I'm not, I don't have nothing to say. She said, okay, well, check this out. Because you don't really understand how this works. So I'm going to bring it down to you. Then I'm going to let you go on back up to the county. Let you sit up there about a month and let you hear about my get down. And then we're going to talk again. She said, "You number one, you can plea out to the charges that I give you with cooperation. And I can have you back at home. Which means telling. Telling. Snitching. You can be, plea out with cooperation. And I can have you back home with Leslie and pretty Devin and pretty Denver. And I'm looking like, how this woman know my kids? Man? You know, I'm like, what? So now I'm like getting real nervous. So I'm trying not to fidget. I still got the mug on. I'm like, with cooperation. But I said, what's the next? She said, you can plea out without cooperation and hope that I had a good night before the night before your sentencing here. Hope but I hope my man treated me real good so I can be in a good mood because you're going to get whatever I want to give you. Or you can take me to trial. And if you take me to trial, when you come home, Denver be close to 30, Devin will be about 34. And she knew my, my son's ages. So now I'm doing the math. Denver's two and Devin's five. I said, Lord, I said, oh, that's, that's out the question. But I had money. So when you have money, you stick your tits up like, I'm going to get me damn near Johnny Cochran out here. Mm-hmm. And we're going to fight this because you only got nothing on me. You ain't got no pictures. You ain't got no mark money. Because you, you were ain't never got caught no with drugs. This was just this was, this is the result of the 94 crime bill that was about just conspiracy. As long as you had somebody on the stand and say, yeah, he did. It. He sold it to me. Right. He had a gun. We That's where the time three. came in. You have to have three or more. OK, so I don't at this time. I'm like, man, OK, she's so going back up there. Now I go to the county and I see killer and Mark dog and the Hoovers and L. L. Orlando Gay. Shout out to L, my homie. Uh, I talk about him all, but just got to give a shout out to L, my homie. L's another my crib homie that looked out for me, looked out for my mom when her house is broken into. If it wasn't for L and you, I wouldn't have had an opportunity to move outside of Oklahoma City. Just wanted to get that shout out. Okay, go ahead. So you looking at L, looking at everybody in, in the county? So once I got to the county and I seen everybody in there, all these dudes that was getting city money in the city, I was like, Lord, how much? And everybody telling me, you better tell. Well, I'm telling you, better tell, man. Only way you're going to get out of this system, man, take this out, man. You country-ass niggas, man. Ain't no telling from where I'm from. What you mean? I'm coming to take money. Did I think about it? Never. Never is absolute, so I won't say never. I'll say it, not at first. But when that right. lady came... Because everybody came, think about it. I mean, let's keep it real. Every, everybody think about it. That don't mean you'll do it, but it, it ran across your mind. Yeah, that's what, that's what I'm saying. When... They talking about distribute because they had me with distribution. Like, ain't no distribution. They ain't caught me doing nothing. I was too smooth for that. So when they changed the charge to conspiracy to distribute 16.5 kilos of crack, now I'm looking at like, see, now you you like, okay, hold up. So now the lady tell me, 
after a month time, what you want to do? She said, man, I, I, I think I want to go to trial. She said, you're sure? And I'm like, yeah, I think I'm ready to go to trial. Because you're going to have to make them dudes prove that. Because I ain't never done nothing. Fred Burley from the east side of Oklahoma, square. All he did was hung with killing Weasel. The day he came back from trial crying, they gave him 30 years, even though killing Weasel, who was the money, told him he didn't have nothing to do with it. He was just riding with him. And he told me, he said, Spud, man, you don't want to go to trial and, and, and get that. I've got 30 years. So after long story show, I went on saying, no, I ain't no trial. I played out to conspiracy to distribute 16.5 kilos of crack, and they gave me 17 and a half years. The final season of Power Book 2 Ghost is here, and no one's future is safe. After surviving a hit on her life, Monet, played brilliantly by Mary J. Blige, has to reckon with what led her to almost lose everything and to atone for the life she has forced her children to live. And on the other side of the coin, Davis, portrayed by the multi-talented Method Man, is suspended and on the verge of losing his law license. Desperate to survive, he fully embraces the criminal underbelly of his enterprise and finds himself working for both sides, loyal to whichever one benefits him most. And then, of course, there's Tariq, who finds himself at rock bottom and facing threats from every angle. With his future in the game in serious doubt and his family's safety on the line, will he lean into the St. Patrick name and do whatever has to be done to get back on top? Like father, like son. Power Book 2, Ghost, the final season. Watch now, only on Stars and the Stars app. In the pressure cooker of the NBA playoffs, there's no room to fake it. When the NBA championship is on the line, every pass, every shot, and every dribble is immediately, undeniably consequential. The playoffs are the time for the real. Real stakes, real emotions, real sweat, real blood, and real tears. Trust me, I know what it takes to bring home a championship ring. The regular season is tough, but these games are a completely different level. Now is the time when legacies are made. The best team will bring home the Larry O'Brien Trophy and add their name to basketball history. Will we see a battle between marquee franchises or will we see a new champion crowned? Which teams will rise from the chaos? Which teams will conquer? Which team is going to make this year? Their year. These are the moments of unscripted, pure entertainment that only happen on the hardwood. You've waited all season for this. It's time to take it to the next level. The NBA Finals continue. Tune in on ABC. There are moments in life that are so special that you have to capture them and save them forever. They are one of those once-in-a-lifetime events, like your baby's first steps, the first time you bring your family pet home, or your daughter's first dance performance. With iPhone 15 Pro, more storage means you don't have to delete anything that could become a lasting memory one day. And it's important to be able to share these moments with family members who weren't there to see them in person. Store more, share more. Connect with iPhone 15 Pro on AT&T. Get iPhone 15 Pro on AT&T and get an iPad and Apple Watch for 99 cents per month each. AT&T. Connecting changes everything. Limited time offer. Requires 0% APR 36-month agreement on each. Well-qualified customers. Other terms and restrictions apply. See att.com slash iPhone for details. And and just uh, to kind of jump in here for a second, you're actually working on a short story just for folks because, again, there's so much information and I know we have about 20, 30 minutes left, but there's so much information I want people to know. We are, or you are, you are writing something now that goes into a little bit of depth on, you know, the telling process 
and what that is in the interrogation, because a lot of people see first 48 and they think that's how it works on the federal side. And it's not. So just for the listeners, keep staying plugged in right here. I'm going to bring Spud back just to talk about the telling process. I'm, I'm rushing him through the story for time purposes, but there's still a lot more um, that I want you to get into at a later time. So basically, let's let's bump up to. You go ahead, you don't tell. You keep against all the way through. You feel like, hey, I got my time. It is what it is. You plea out without telling. You're thinking that you're probably going to get maybe about 10 years or so. 14. 14 years. Walk me through the day, you know, quickly on when you thought you were getting 14 and how that changed and what happened when you went to the cell on the first day of getting that time. Because I want to go there, then I want to talk about how you start writing books and, and close it up. When I went to sentencing, my lawyer had already said PSI came back, which is pre-sentence investigation report. You're a first-time nonviolent offender. You're going to get four. They, they tell it to you in months, though. You're going to get 168 months. That's 14 years. You do about 11 and a half, 12, and you come home. So I'm all right. Okay, I can do that. I, I can do that. Get my mind right. Get, get my body right as own. By the end of that sentence, my head was spinning because my numbers changed to 17 and a half years because they brought a guy, another snitch to get on the stand and say, every time I sold him a kilo of cocaine, I had a gun. So that gave me a two point enhancement, changed the whole game. I get 17 and a half years. I leave the courtroom with my head spinning. And I just knew that night in bed, I said, I got to do something. Before I come up out of here, I got to do something to have my mind right. So when I went to my first federal prison, which was El Reno, Oklahoma, I was like still wild and I reverted back to my old game banging days and was just angry. And I'm trying to take it out of anybody I could. So when I got the old deal, I was Louisiana, another FCI. I still had that mindset, but I was like, I got to do something else. And I got in some trouble and I went to the shoot and I read all the books I could read. And then my mother just told me, you need to write a book, write a book. So I started playing with it. I started writing, letting dudes in the shoe read my work. And they was liking it. Man, I had everybody beating off me. So that pumped me up. So I just kept on writing. I never went to school with it. I never had, you know, I graduated from high school. And everybody always said I was a smart guy. So I was putting it together. And finally, by the time I got out of shoe, one of my partners named Antoine Smith from Louisiana, shout out to Antoine, because he sent my book out to Terry Woods to let her check it out. He paid for it to have it done because I didn't have the money at the time. All the money was gone now. And then bump it up to 2005, I was in three FCI Three Rivers and I get a letter from Terry Woods saying, call me, collect. I've read your work. I like it. I want to do some business with you. And I was in a cell with my homeboy Spook from Bonnie and we just was like, whoa, we both pray. He crying for me and I'm crying. We couldn't wait for the weekend so I can go um, the week in the past so I can call my counsel. So still speeding it up. I get the deal with Terry, Terry Woods. She said, uh, she bought two of my books for $25,000. So I'm like, whoa. And she's like, yeah, um, keep dealing with me. So then I go in 2007, I meet another friend of mine named Jimmy DeSaint. He's a good author out of Philadelphia. He turned me on to a lady named Karen Mitchell. And she took my book and she put my first book out, California Love. And that was 2009. But then her company went defunct and she went to go work for Carl Weber. 
And Carl Weber, she told Carl Weber about me. And then he hooked me up with a deal. And that's how the book thing came about. And so the book thing is, let's be clear, Carl Weber, owner of Urban Books, one of the largest or the largest black book distributor. So you got your first book. You put it out. In Walmart, you are so humble. So I had to interject and say this. Your books are available everywhere. Walmart, Barnes and Noble, all over the country. You have a total of how many titles? 14. Number 15 to be out sometime this year. I haven't got the date yet. And to touch on this, because this is important that we get in this in this time. We talked a little bit about you did an interview with Court TV on prison literacy. And as you were writing books, you had an opportunity to see how many people in, in the penitentiary could not read, but yet they had an interest in your book. Tell us a little bit about that, because I, when I bring you back, I want to connect that dot on how you were able to help men in prison and uh, the importance of people knowing prison literacy is real and how we have to make sure that people can read so that they, when they get out, they can get job application, fill out job applications and so forth. So talk a little bit about how your books were able to help. Uh, other inmates and other homies because of their interests uh, in your content? Well, you know, in, in the federal prison, everybody got their circles. And some deal outside a little bit. Most of you keep it within. And I just happened to notice a couple of homies within our circle. On certain little things they would do, it just tripped me out a little bit. And then I was like, pull one of my homies to the side. And I'm like, you want to read my book? He's like, oh, yeah, man, I want to check it out. I said, yeah, you see the shout out to the homies, right? He's like, yeah, yeah, he just, he looking at the book, but you can tell he ain't reading nothing. So my chick's out, homie, just between me and you. You know how to read? And he looked at me, I said, I ain't gonna say nothing to nobody, homie, just me and you. He's like, nah. I said, but you be faking like you be knowing how to read, you know, they gambling tickets and all that? He's like, yeah, man, it's just certain things I can pick up on, but I, I can't. And so I'm mean, just come kick it with me every night. We're going to sit here like we challenging it up. And I'm going to teach you how to read. You're going to read this whole book on your own by the time we're done. So once I seen that, it kind of hit me like, man, I wonder how many more dudes like this can't read. So I went down to the library and asked one of the um, ACE teachers, can I teach a class on, you know, write book, book right. Since I'm a published author, I'm like a star in there now. You know, everybody likes book, got books out, book, got books out. So that's how I start helping people. You know what I'm saying? My, my classroom, I used to just say straight up, man, if y'all have a problem reading, y'all just everything going here, staying here. We're going to try to learn from everything I can. And I'm going to give you the little tidbits I've learned around the way. And that started off with that. And then you started teaching classes in prison um, yes. where you had an opportunity not just to teach people to read, but how to teach them how to write books. All right. Giving the beginning phases of it. And I remember you writing me and talking to me about, you know, being frustrated and trying to get people to get it and try to, you know, but but feeling that reward at the end, you know, when you had a student that finally got it, which is why I'm always so excited when I can get a homie to pay attention to what I'm doing in politics, because it's so rewarding when you can, you know, show somebody about politics during your time. You know, we went back and forth a lot about. You know, I would come see you from Orlando, 1500 miles when you were doing time in Beaumont. And you at that time, you didn't understand my love for politics. And I remember you asking me, why do you love these complete strangers? They're they not going to ride with you, not going to be with you. It never really clicked to you. And there was a lot of resentment that you had, you know, because you believed at that time, you know, during President Obama's presidency, 
that the crack cocaine law uh, would be reduced and you would have an opportunity to get out. And we only have a few minutes left, but because we'll pick this up in another series, you know, to go deeper in that. But I, I, it was important that everybody know, knew your background. But I remember you having a lot of frustration and anger because you felt like the government let you down twice because there was a hope that you had in Obama. And now that you've had an opportunity to kind of be more in my space, you understand, you know, the importance of, you know, controlling the Congress and having all the control to be able to really, you know, push the line and get things done. But talk a little bit about how you remember we saw about politics and it wasn't easy because you'd be like, I don't want to hear that shit. Fuck that. It don't mean nothing to me. And you've now you've turned into like a kind of lightweight political pundit. <laughs> so I want to, as, as we close up, I want to talk about your transition from saying fuck politics and everything with it to now you seeing how influential you can be there in California would now that people are coming up to you asking, you know, what's what's up with this? What's the electoral college? What's Trump going to do? What's Biden going to do? And you done straight up turn into a political pundit, like be arguing people and everything. And I just sit back, just please the same way you were pleased and how I carry myself in certain situations Back in the 90s, I'll never forget how you looked at me on one particular night. We won't get into the details, but one particular night I stood up like a real G. I'm going to get that credit. <laughs> and I remember your face, but I'm telling you, I remember the chair you were sitting in. And I remember you staring at me and smiling and shaking your head like I can't believe because you would always say you carry yourself like a homegirl that we raised up in this. And you knew you didn't technically, you know, you met me when I was a teenager, but technically for all point, you know, just for clarity, you kind of was still raising me because remember I'm a teenager, but it tripped you out how I carry myself on this one particular night because in your mind, you didn't think I had the official training, but it was instinct to me. So the night that you looked at me like, okay, she, okay. She handling herself like a real G. When I see you in politics now, like literally getting into heavy debates about policy and all that, that's how I sit and I look at you. I sit back and say, wow, this has been 10 years of you and I arguing from 2010 to now, arguing about politics, trying to let you know where you where your place is in this, letting you know that you have a position in this, explaining to you how it's just like Inglewood family, how politics, organization structures, just like the OGs and the BGs and the YGs and, you know, how the sets are set up is just like districts and how votes are set up and Democrats are like Crips and Republicans are like Bloods. And you have taken that game in the 10 years, even though you were acting like you wasn't listening, apparently you were. And now you get it. And you, I want to say this, you bring me so much hope. I, I wanted people to really, I didn't want to rush through this because I want to bring series of you on, but I wanted people to hear from the person that inspires me to go hard the way I do. Especially when we talk about the 94 crime bill, prison reform and all of those things, because my passion is attached to a real friend, you know, attached to a real person and not just you, my cousins, my family, all of the homies that we mentioned, it's attached to a real person. And so now to see what you've evolved to mentoring kids and you have two books that come out every year, you're working on a short film. I'm so very proud of you. I know E.T. is so proud of you. Rest in peace. He's always said, man, just keep pushing your books. And there's so many other homies that you lost. I think 
you shared with me at one time, 20, 30 homies while you were locked up. There's so many things I want to talk about from the mental side, you know, which is something, you know, that I've been working on mental, mental health for the homies. There's so much that I want people to know what I witnessed during that time, during time, some of your time with you, how you changed my life. If it hadn't been for you and L giving me the money to go to Dallas. When I decided to go, it wasn't my daddy. My daddy didn't have it. My mama didn't have it. I came to you. And if you hadn't given me the money to start my life over in Dallas, Texas, I don't know if I would be doing the things that I'm doing now. Nobody had it to give. You had it to give. You gave it to me. I'll never forget that day when you gave me the money, you gave me the cash. And I said, Spud, I can't believe you really giving me this. And you said, go do something with yourself. And I said, and you asked me, I said, you don't want nothing from me. And you said, no. And then you said, before you walked out the door, you said, are you going to come see me if I get locked up? And I said, of course I'll come see you. I said, why would you say that? You said, because either I'm going to be dead or I'm going to be locked up. It ain't no other way to go. And then when you asked him to come see you, I said, yes. And we lost contact because Frank, I lost contact with Frank, who was my connection to you. Cause I didn't know you by Clifford. I knew you by Spud, but we reconnected back in 2010. And I came to see you that year to keep my promise. Cause I said, I would always come see you. And that interaction with us back and forth, you know, doing time and me really having an understanding had it not been for you allowing me inside those walls with you to know the mental that goes on, not just with you, but even people that you did time with. Remember, I connected with them and met with them and chopped it up with their women. It has truly been an honor. And I am humbled and grateful for you allowing me, one, for always protecting me, allowing me to see another side of life that I wouldn't have never had an opportunity to see because my mom's side was church seven days a week. You are truly the foundation and the rock to why I do what I do. And I wanted people to hear your story so that they could know you're human and you matter too. And there's so many other things that I want to talk about as I bring you on for part two. But I really wanted to end it with that. And I wanted you to close with how you see things now in the political space and how you feel you you have some ownership in, in how things can be changed and what that change can mean and what that means to you and what that, how that affects the homies on the block. You know, there was a time when you was like, shit, I didn't get time taken off of me. So fuck them. But I've seen that change in you. I've seen, you know, now that your influence one vote at a time, you speaking up and telling people, giving people game and information that that truly is making a difference for others that you left behind. Remember we went back and forth about the first step back. You said, oh man, that's just a waste of time. It ain't worth time. Then you start seeing people come out, you know, on the first step back, homies are like, man, this really made a difference. So as we close, and again, I want people to come back for series one, two, three, four. I'm definitely bringing Spud back because as you can see, there's so much information and I, I want several interviews to go on certain parts of your life. But tell me a little bit about how you see, saw politics then and how you see it now as we close, because our closing will be what's next for Spud after now that you have this understanding. So tell us about that uh, a little bit, Spud, if you don't mind. Well, I have to give all kudos to you because you you pressed the line so hard on me. I had no choice to, to, get, to get interest, but I always felt that politicians were liars. I don't trust them. They don't say whatever they say to get in office and they're going to forget about us. I remember being so proud. We all standing up watching the TV, all, every TV in the TV room, seven TVs, 
all on the president, the race, or whatever. Then when they said oh, it's official, President Obama's well, everybody's screaming and yelling. We's excited. We going home because we seen all these news things on CHEC and this, this, this about how he was talking about he's going to crack and cocaine is the same. And I'm so our oh, brother going to stand on his word. No limitations, 100, one to one, even. Once he got in office, oh, I can't do one to one. I'm only going to do 10 to one. Ten and one, and so now everybody dropped because now everybody that got anything over a kilo on their case, you're not coming on. He said it was going to be no bias to this, and he changed it. At that time, I'm like, see, that's why I feel the way I feel. Now we advance up years now after being untutored from the great Tezin Figaro, <laughs> and I've learned now the reason why his hands was tied and then when he can only do certain things. So that made me gain just a little bit more interest. I'm like, okay, let me check this out. So now I'm looking at other avenues of this, and I'm like, okay. And I'm seeing like the first step back. Man, I'm thinking to let nobody out. They're just talking. Close friend of mine, since I was a baby, rabbit, he gets out. He calls me. What's up? I'm like, what you on the cell phone? He said, man, I'm walking on a plane. I said, huh? So I'm getting on the flight. Nigga's first step back took, brought me home. I'm like, whoa. Then I had two or three more people that got out because of this first step back. So I'm like, damn. Tell them Mike must know what she's talking about. And I re- let's just pause right there for a second. I know we wrapping up, but family, I want y'all to know we argued like hell over the first step back yeah. because <laughs> I, I was working with an organization called Cut 50, which is uh, an organization designed to cut uh, mass incarceration in all 50 states. And I tried to get you involved. You did not want to hear that shit. I'm telling you, you got mad as hell. You was like, fuck that shit. This ain't nothing but a waste of time. They ain't going to do nothing. I'm telling you, ain't nothing but lies. I mean, you got mad for real. Like all of the trauma, you know, seriously, all of the trauma that you were upset about and everything, like I felt that, I understood that. And that that is what helped me advocate. I want people to know. They say, I can't believe you go on Fox. Fox was the only one that allowed me an opportunity to talk about the First Step Act. And so when I was talking, I don't give a damn if Trump pushed it, Obama pushed it, whoever didn't push it. I did this for people like Spud. It was never about these politicians, these pastors, or anybody else. This was for the homies, bottom line. And when I say that, I mean that shit. This is not no gimmick. When I was talking about the First Step Act, because at that time when I was pushing the First Step Act, you would straight up, you know, telling me it was a waste of time. And people don't understand, I wasn't just arguing with people, you know, People who said, I can't believe you pushing the first step back. That's a Trump policy. I had to fight their ass. I had to fight black people. I can't believe you going on Fox. And I got to fight the closest people to me, you, who actually did time that I knew the first step back would help. And I had to argue you. So when you see, go shout out, go watch that clip when I was pushing the first this first step back on, on Fox. I want people to know where that passion came from. I really was pushing this line like by myself in my world because that was before Breakfast Club came in the mix and black people knew about me because a lot of black people didn't know about me. I've been on Fox six years. Black people don't watch Fox. A lot of them don't watch Fox. So they didn't know I was out there pushing hard like this. You damn sure wasn't interested. The homies wasn't interested. So I really felt like I was out there by myself, like really pushing because I would say, Spud, talk to the homie. You know, in the organization at First Step Back at, at Cut 50. Shout out to Lewis Reed. You know, I put you on the phone with him. I was like, talk to him so he can tell you because he did time. You know, like, fuck that. I don't want to hear that shit. I done seen this happen over and over and over. So it it really was personal to me because I felt like I had to show that there had to be some type of change. Not just to help the homies, but people like you to get inspired. 
And I, I want to be clear, kind of backtrack a little bit when you said, I just want to put a pin on this when you said, I explained to you that his, his hands were tied. Yes, Obama's hands were tied because he was doing it the unity way, the bipartisan way, the let's get everybody on board way. If he did it the gangster way, he could have did an executive order. So I want to be clear right, about that because right. I want we ain't giving Obama no passes, but I did explain to you how the process goes. So I wanted to put that pin in there because I wanted people to know the personal fight, you know, that I had with people that I love, no support on any end, but knowing that the outcome I believe would do right. And I appreciate you for acknowledging that. After people started doing, getting out because you didn't have to come back and be like, hey, the homie just got out. This homie just got out. But you shared that with me. And it meant so much to me, not for my own personal ego, but because I wanted you to see. So now you saw the first step back. You saw how Trump get down on his gangster. I want to bring you back to talk about that, because when I talk about politics is gangbanging, they'll never understand it like you understand it because you got to be a gangbanger to understand the culture. But now that you see, OK. Our voices kind of matter. We can kind of push the line. How do you see politics now, your involvement, and what you can do on your one part to push the line and to get more homies involved? I'm kind of proud of myself, too, you know, because it feels good to, for people that was with me in, in rehabilitation and whatever, they ask questions, ask Cliff, ask Cliff. He know about that. He know all about it. He going to tell you. Everybody listen to him. When I was watching the debates and I'm telling him, look, if they don't do this, if they come weak, Trump gonna pounce on them. Watch what I'm trying to tell you. And I'm giving them advice. And I'm like, yeah, they did so he's sucking it up. Like I got. <laughs> so, but I have a better understanding now. I open my eyes, and though I tend to look to look at things through tunnel vision, I've been taught to broaden and look broad. And now I understand. And I understand. I wasn't a Trump support, a supporter. I wasn't winning. But like I should tell him, you got to respect what he's doing. This is doing right in while the debate was going. I said, look at what he's doing. He's not talking to her arguing about what his antics is. They talking about everything. What our president done, what our president. He's talking to his base. He's telling his base. I've done this. I've done this. I tried to do this, but they wouldn't let me. I said, this is what he's doing. I said, Kamala and Biden better tighten up or they're going to make lose his race. Because you see what he do. He's talking to his base. Mm -hmm. They got to talk to us, tell us what they're going to do. And they got to make us understand and feel them that they're going to be able to do what they say. And I voted for Kamala and Biden. And I was like, okay, they convinced me. You know what I mean? I, I, this is my first time voting in. 20 years, so I felt real good. Over 20 years. Yeah. That's how I voted your was. sticker was and did all of that. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I took my picture, kept my button. I was proud of that. Yeah. I'm finally a citizen. Feel feel like that. And, uh, you know, a lot of my partners, Kenny Boy, you know. He, Shout out he to likes, my big homie, Kenny Boy. Man, Kenny Boy, right. I, I'm telling you, we're going to wrap up, but we're going to get into this later because I really want people to understand. I did a little bit on the Gangster uh, Chronicles podcast but I want people to know the people in my life that I literally, you know, talk to when I explain this shit in politics. You know, I talk about a G code training and G code is for the G's, but it's for government to explain, you know, how people say, why are you talking about gangbanging glorify? I'm not glorifying gangbanging. I'm telling you that politics is gangbanging literally. And you and I have so many conversations. I'm like, OK, the electoral college 
is like Inglewood family. You know how the, the big homies do this is that. And I'm telling you, soak it up. And it's not that you can't understand it the other way, because you, you, for contrary to probably you're one of the most intelligent men that I've ever met in my life, period. Not too many men could figure out how to make 100 racks a week. So that's another, that's what I want squares to understand right out the gate. Before you try to judge people and get get in somebody's mind and understand the intelligence that's, that's there, the stealth that's there. More importantly, the heart that's there, the heart that it takes to push the line. You know, the heart that I've seen that you had, that E.T. had. I want to bring you back and talk about that. I want people to know how gangster E.T. was, how he's been shot 11 times and lived through it all. And when he did pass, it was his own decision. And he stood up like a G and made that decision and didn't shed a tear. I want people to know that. I want people to know your story. I want to know everything that you've been through, all of the physical suffering that you've been through, the rehab that you've been in the last couple of years, how you kept pushing the line, having the heart. That's the type of heart that I want to see in politics. And I know you have it and I know you can do it. And I believe in you, not just believe in you. I love you. And these are ser a series of interviews but that I want people to really get involved with, because if there's nothing else that I do, I want to please the creator and know that I had an opportunity to touch the least of these. I don't give a damn. And you know me better than anybody. You know, I don't give a damn about impressing no politician. But when the homie, when the big homie Kenny boy called me and say, I saw you on Fox. You pushed the line. You did your shit. Man, that means something. When the, And so people just will get some clarity. We talking about the founder of Crenshaw Mafia, one of the founders. We talking about men that in their 50s and 60s, they done, they done laid down. They're not on the front line. They're doing something else. When they call me and say, explain this to me and break this down to me, man, that means so much to me. I don't give a damn about what. And that's how I've been able to survive in this, stay strong in this, and push the line because you taught me to keep my head my head held high and to never waver and never back down and believe in what I believe in. And that's what keeps me strong, not just in politics and on TV, but in these comments when I got to deal with these lames and decisions that I've had to make, opportunities that I've had to turn down. You've always been right there saying you got to keep pushing the line. You always about the long play, whether you knew about politics or not. You've given me so much gangster so much insight, so much of understanding how to be real in the field and never be weak. And I'm and I and that has meant a lot to me. And it's it's authentic, it's official, and I want to give you that credit in your flowers right now while you're living. So I, I do want to thank you, you know, for coming on today. And in closing, I'm gonna let you get the last word and then and pardon me, straight shooters, this interview is a little bit longer than normal, but I just could not bypass this quickly because I wanted you to know who's been one of the most influential people in my life the last 27 years and why I'm the gangster that I am in politics. <laughs> and it really does start with this man, um, him, Annie T and so many others. He think he put me on, but I keep trying to explain this, but you ain't the first gangster I met now. Don't sleep on my cousins, but you know, it, I did get a, a more of an intimate experience, you know, from being, you know, right in the mix. I'm going to let you get the final words, honey, and just give the people, you know, what you want them to know. And then before we get out of here, I do want people to make sure you visit uh, CliffordSpudJohnson.com, all of his titles, 14 plus titles, new book coming out this year, two new, two every year, national bestselling Arthur. We are going to spend more time on that so that people can know how do you keep pushing? How do you keep how do you write when you got nothing before walls, you know, beside you to motivate you? There's so many different layers to your story that I want people to know. 
But for now, I'm going to let you close up on where you see yourself, you know, going next and, and how you, you know, you're owning your space. And then we'll get out of here and bring you back for another interview of part two of more of Clifford Spud Johnson. All right. Well, you know, first of all, again, I'd like to thank you, DR, to put me on your stage. <laughs> Just so y'all know, bit. I'm sorry. DR is my nick. That's my name, my set name, y'all, for Center Park Dark Red. But, but go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> but, Little uh, E.T. Little gave me that name. <laughs> seriously, I want to thank you again for letting me, you know, speak and share a little bit about my story and just listening to you, how you broke down so many different facets of my life made me look like, damn, that could be a series, huh? It can. So, <laughs> you know, it's, I have a lot of things in the work right now. I just turned in my 15 book, Stolen Moments. It'll be out sometime this year. I haven't got the date from our publisher yet. I'm, on, I'm in the midst of working on a short 15 to 30 minute short film untitled it's going to be formed around interrogating your snitches and how the federal prosecutors and, and um, fbi get the majority of their people to tell and it's going to be real deep and then just continue to write my books and continue to learn because as long as i got i got tears i know every day i'm gonna learn something she told me to read an article about my craft learn my craft i mean every day it's a lesson one way or another i'm gonna get a lesson about something even if I say, no, I want to do this. Like, no, listen, listen. <laughs> well, I, I want to, and I want to put that, let's, let's, you know, you say as long as you got Tesla, you know, I always tell you things that I, you know, I always say, you don't like me talking like this because you've lost so many people, but I always say, what, what would you do if I'm not here? So what would you do if I'm not here? So it's not about as long as you got me. I try to teach you how to find information for yourself, the how to be resourceful to yourself. So I want exactly. to be clear. And, 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 and that that's important because politicians play that game. They want you to be dependent upon them for knowledge. So I, that's why I want to put that pin in there because I try to teach people not just get the game from me, but how to get it from yourself. You know, I'm quick to you send me a question. I'll be like, did you Google it? Did you look it up? I'm not going to answer it till we get to that point. So right. people need to know that leaders out there that's giving this game. If they want you to be completely dependent upon them. That's why they've been able to get the pimp game on us. So it's all about learning. I appreciate the humble and I appreciate the the trust, but I do want people to be prepared in case I'm 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 not here. So I do appreciate right. you saying that though. Yes, I mean it's from the heart, and I know what I've meant to you, and you know what you've meant to me. But on a deeper stage, on a deeper level, what I have goals, I have goals of standing up. Because right now I cannot stand up. I'm paraplegic. From the mid thigh down, and that's one of my goals that I can't. I continue to do one day. I'm gonna stand back up, and I'm be able to stand and walk to you, because uh, when my incident happened, when I opened my eyes, the first person I saw was you. You always have my back. I'm always have yours. The team gonna always have your back because you know we love us some dr. So if you have me back, I'll be more than grateful, and thank you for the time. Love you. Man, I appreciate that. I didn't want to talk about the injury. I didn't sure if you wanted to go into that. But if you're down to talk about that, I want to bring you back to talk about that. I appreciate your transparency and your story because, yes, you uh, were paralyzed two years ago. And it has absolutely changed your life. And it most certainly has changed mine. Not just being there during that time, but every single day. And I, I want people to know. And, and again, we're going to roll out mental health for the homies because that's a hell of a story. We could write a book on that just alone. Just everything that comes <laughs> with that. 
I'm telling you, I, I've experienced so much by my connection with you. And I want to get into that because that that's going to help some people for real. So thank you so much for giving me this time to roll your story out. I wanted to introduce you the right way. I wanted to kick you off with season two. You were supposed to come in season one, but stuff got so busy with politics. So I wanted this to be the first interview. People been asking, what's up, what's up, what's up with another interview coming out? And I wanted you to be introduced the right way. If guys, if you don't get no book, get at least a book that I'm dedicated, that they dedicated the book to me. And that's what, what's the name of it again? So they can get my book. They don't play fit. That's right. And that talks about a female named Special. And I'm special as hell, y'all, straight up. So I'm going to give myself some credit shit. Ain't nobody in this game on both sides of this game like this. <laughs> but um, thank you, honey. Thank you for coming in again. You can find him at ClifferSpudJohnson.com. Please go look it up. Learn more about him. Write a review. Send some love. Rate. Share this interview. If it doesn't help you, I guarantee it's going to help somebody. This is one of the many reasons why I do what I do. This is why I push the line. This is why I am a straight shooter. This is why the name of the show is Straight Shot No Chaser. Again, we're kicking off season two. Go back binge on season one. Listen to the interviews. They're timeless. It never changes because the game never changes. It's always the same. Only the players change in the game. So go back, listen to season one, binge, share, rate, review. Thank you so much for keeping us in the top 200 consistently. We hope to do the same thing in season two. And I'll also be coming in, dropping game at least once or twice a week, giving you your daily commentary on the latest updates on politics. And we'll be getting it in all the way through. Al, shout out again to Charlemagne the God and the whole entire Black Effect Podcast Network family for giving me this opportunity to be myself for you because I truly have love for black people. Like I always say, use it, lose it, but I can't make you choose it. Until then, we'll meet again. Thank you so much. If you like what you heard on Straight Shot No Chaser, please subscribe and drop a five-star review and tell a friend. Straight Shot No Chaser is a production of the Black Effect Podcast Network and iHeartRadio. I'm Tesla Figaro, and I'd like to thank our producer, editor, mixer, the one and only Marcy DePina, our mix master. Dwayne Crawford and our executive producer Charlemagne the God. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. This episode is supported by FX's Clipped, the scandalous story of the 2014 Clippers owner's racist remarks captured on tape and heard around the world. The series charts the tape's impact on a dysfunctional basketball organization striving to win against their reputation as the most cursed team in the league. Starring Lawrence Fishburne, Jackie Weaver, Cleopatra Coleman, and Ed O'Neill. FX is clipped. Now streaming only on Hulu. In the pressure cooker of the NBA playoffs, there's no room to fake it. Every pass, shot, and dribble is immediately consequential. The playoffs are the time for the real. Real stakes, real emotions, real sweat, blood, and tears, real legacies. Which teams will rise from the chaos? Which teams will conquer? Which team is going to make this year their year? You already know when and where to find these moments of unscripted, pure entertainment. The NBA Finals continue. Tune in on ABC. The following is a high-five moment from HighFiveCasino.com. Welcome to Burger King. 
Burger Yippee, would you like a hot apple pie today? Yes, yes, yeah, I won! Woohoo! So that's a yes on the apple pie? I just went big time playing High Five Casino on my phone. Real cash prizes, free daily rewards, over 1,200 games. Yeah. So yes or no on the apple pie? Woo! <laughs> I won again! I'll take that as a yes. Drive around. Have you had your High Five moment today? Only at HighFiveCasino.com. High Five Casino is a social casino. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited. Play responsibly. Conditions apply. See website for details. High Five Casino.